Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying healthy, happy, and safe. I have really great guests for you today, so let's get right at it. Later in the show, we'll meet Ali Liebert. She's a Canadian Screen Award winner for her work on the television show Bomb Girls, and she can now be seen in They Who Surround Us, a poignant drama about a Ukrainian farmer living in Alberta who loses his wife in a tragic accident. It is getting great reviews, and we'll tell you all about it in just a few minutes. Then, best-selling author Terry Fallis stops by to talk about the long-awaited follow-up to his chart-topping books, The Best Laid Plans and The High Road. The new book is called Operation Angus, and it's a comic spy story that heralds the return of his most famous character, Angus McClintock. That's later on. First, let's meet Rachel Yoder. She's the author of a new novel called Night Bitch, the story of a stay-at-home mom who becomes convinced she's turning into a dog. The book is a bestseller and has recently been optioned by Amy Adams to be turned into a film. Rachel Yoder joined me via Zoom from Iowa City, Iowa. It's such a provocative book. How does it feel to have it finished and out in the world? Because it took about four years, from what I understand, to write this. It feels great, actually, to have it be a thing that is now feels very separate mm -hmm. from me. And other people are having their experiences of it, for better or for worse. And I, I like that. I like that it's, it's now taking on its own life, apart from me. It, was it all consuming while you were working on it? Or was it one of those things that you would pick up and put down and pick up and put down? Yeah, I mean, I had to pick it up and put it down because I didn't have a life wherein I could be all consumed by a project. Right. Yeah, so this was definitely written in fits and starts. But but when I was in those fits and starts, it, I was in it very deeply. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was writing a thousand words a day for two weeks... I was pretty deeply in it, but then I would just have to cut it off, put it away, and then come back to it. How do you maintain enthusiasm for a project, for one story, over that amount of time uh, when you are putting it down, picking it up? I know projects that I put down sometimes don't get picked up again. So how right. did you do it? I had a singular determination that I've never had with another project when I came mm -hmm. to this one. I was 40 years old. Um, I had had, two, you know, gone through two MFA programs and I told myself, I am writing a book. This is my book. I am publishing a book. It is time, Rachel. <laughs> um, and so I was determined and that's, that's really how I kept it going. You know, I wanted to have the experience of having had written a book length manuscript because I felt like I really needed that in my repertoire to move forward and in my career. The day that the box of books arrives is a very special day. So when you sign a book deal, typically they say, well, we'll give you 25 copies or whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, and I know when my first book came out, I sat and I stared at that box for a very long time because I knew once I opened it up, that dream was over. The dream that I had had about writing a book and seeing my name on the spine of a book uh, <laughs> forever was going to go. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have to write another one perhaps after this, or I, I don't know what to do. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, there is this sort of grief in a certain way, right? Because a book has such infinite potential as you're writing it and it can be, 
can be anything and you can keep imagining it into greater and greater heights. But then when it's printed and it's an actual object, uh, it seemed it's so unchangeable at that mm -hmm. point. Uh, I got surprise books and my, I didn't know they were coming and I got them. I actually got the UK version of the book first. Mm. And so it was just an utter delight. I mean, it was an utter delight to hold it. It was really astonishing and unexpected. It's, I, I also have a little, I'm a little scared of the book. You know, I don't, I don't really want to open it and look too deeply in it <laughs> and see what's there. Um, I probably need to reread it at this point because people are, you know, I've been talking to people about it and they'll talk about parts. And I'm like, oh, that part sounds really good. I don't remember it, but yes. Yeah. Great. So, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was wonderful to have the book. And again, it just, it feels like something that's so distinct from me now. And so, so separate. Yeah. Well, the protagonist of the book uh, turns into a dog or starts to turn into a dog. Um, what, what is the dog? Uh, what does it mean to you? The primal nature of that animal? What does it mean to you? I mean, <laughs> I think the whole dog thing for me was more just taking a feeling that I had and trying to animate it in a way that other people could understand. And it came out as a dog to me when I was writing it, it wasn't even that defined. It was more like just this beast, this feral part of you. Um, and then the dog, it, it sort of formed into a dog because dogs are, you know, live with us in our domestic spaces and, um, all, but also no wildness. And, and that seemed like an apt, um, the, the apt creature to sort of have in the book. Um, yeah. So I was just, like I said, it, it just began as me trying to capture this, this rage and wildness within a physical form. You're listening to my interview with Rachel Yoder, author of Night Bitch, which is now available wherever fine books are sold. And over the time that you worked on it, the, the four years that you were writing this book, was there ever a time when you thought, oh, I've gone off the rails here. This is too strange. People won't understand this book or they, they might not get it. Richard, every day. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, um, writing a book about a mom that turns into a dog is a very bad idea. You don't want to, when you sit down and tell someone that it, uh, they say, what, what are you talking about? That's, that's utterly deranged. And for me, that's part of the fun of it. I, mm -hmm. I do like impossible ideas, ideas that can't work. And if there's something provocative in them um, that I want to explore, I, I like that as a challenge. Um, to say, okay, it's going to be a mom that turns into a dog, horrible idea, but I'm going to make it work. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. And like the weirder it got as we get into the sort of the multi-level marketing and like the weird moms, and then, you know, this sort of philosophical anthropologist that comes in. I mean, it kept getting weirder. And I think I just said, these are, these are bold decisions and just go with them because I, if, if my artistic philosophy is anything it is to make bold decisions to not play it safe because that's the kind of art that I like mm -hmm. looking at and reading um, so that's really what I was going for with this project 
Yeah, you've said that a couple of times. I have the quote here, writing a book in which a mom becomes a dog is a horrible idea. And <laughs> I think it's it's funny that that is that sort of the forefront of your idea, of your mind. What do people respond? Now, obviously, the book is out. It's a big time publisher. People are loving it. It's being turned into a movie. But what was that first pitch like? What What was the response from the publisher when you said, here's my idea? Yeah. Well, you know, I first kind of pitched it to my agent as I was writing it because Mm -hmm. I didn't want to write a completely deranged book and have her say, what have you done? And (laughs) so I was very delighted when I sent her the first 50 pages that she didn't say, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing, Rachel? She said, no, like, go, keep going. So, so that was very, you know, wonderful to hear. I think, you know, as we took it out on submission, there were a lot of early passes um, because there is a certain sort of, you know, highbrowness to the literary community, perhaps one might call it snobbery. Um, <laughs> and I think this book was also working against that, was like challenging that and saying, hey, I'm going to give you, you know, this book with my written with my two MFAs, um, but it's going to have a wear mom in it. What are you going to do with it? So, you know, there, there were, there were a lot of passes early on. And I think it was just a matter of finding the right editor with the right sensibility who saw, you know, that this, that this could really work. And that even though it's a weird book, there's a message in it that I, that was going to resonate with a lot of, with a lot of readers. Well, let's talk about the, the messaging in the book or the message of the book. Um, there's there's a number of things that I found really interesting. Uh, most of the characters uh, are unnamed, uh, which I thought was a really interesting choice. We can talk about that. Um, the the toddler is active, very active. So, uh, what what do you think the book says to mothers uh, or people about becoming uh, a parent? Yeah, I mean even though there are surreal elements in the book, I think this is a very, in a lot of ways, this is very hard realism, you know, about how difficult and messy and chaotic it is to enter into early parenthood um, in modern society and how so many families struggle with the same questions Mm -hmm. and, and conundrums that Night Bitch and her family are struggling with. Um, yeah. And so in that way, I, I thought it was really going to resonate because it was looking at, um, some really like fundamental, fundamental questions and problems. Um, and then using that as a base to kind of spin off into these surreal storylines. And I, I really felt that there, that it was important to kind of go into the surreal and into the magical and into the impossible to, to kind of perhaps find some more, not find solutions, but to like look at these problems in a new way. Like, can we take the impossible and apply it to these very sort of quotidian problems that we all have? And in some way expand our understanding or expand our way of thinking about it um, to our benefit. Well, I think that the, the book works because it takes uh, 
it's very specific in what it is. It's, it, mm-hmm. it is a, it's a, a book of, of weird literature. So it's part of that. Uh, but the universal themes that come out of it are things that uh, anyone who's ever been a parent can relate to and understand. So, you know, it, it's like uh, all great science fiction or great horror or whatever it is. It's not about the thing. It's not about the the, the creature. It's about the stuff that creates the creature. It's about mm-hmm. the stuff that surrounds the creature. And I think that's why this works so well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. And, and I do think, I mean, perhaps that's part of like the strength of the book, but also maybe, um, where where it gets lost with some readers is that people don't quite know how to read it like is it science fiction is it horror is it literary like what is this book and I think some people come to it thinking it's one thing and it's very much something else um so yeah perhaps that's that's been one of the challenges of it for some folks now I mentioned earlier that uh, many of the characters were unnamed what was it, it I would only think that that could be confusing while you're writing it, trying to keep everyone straight or figuring out how to refer to people. Tell me a little bit about that decision and and why you went that way. Well, you know, I'm very interested in mythology and interested in archetypes. And um, so as I was working on this, it very much in the beginning felt sort of like a myth that I was starting, you know, because it was very much about the mother and the father Mm -hmm. and the child. and I really wanted the characters to be animations of ideas and to be archetypes. And that felt really important to me as opposed to making them really specific named characters. Certainly, I I think the book could have worked had that been the case. Um, But I kind of wanted to keep it in that realm of the mythic, especially because there was also going to be this transformation that was happening, right? So it sort of flags it that the that the book is not operating in normal reality. It's sort of operating in the world of like metaphor and idea. Um, and we're, we're here to sort of play around with ideas and see what happens. Um, and so that was my thinking moving through it. I think at one point I did maybe like try to put a name in and immediately it just felt incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't interrogate it too much after that and just kept rolling with it. Does the book suggest that being a mother is uh, a joy or a curse or, or what, what, what do you think it says? Because everyone's going to take, what do you think it says? Well, <laughs> well I, I think everyone that reads it will take away uh, something from their own personal experience. We're all, we're all, uh, we all approach whatever our art is, whatever our relationship to art is, uh, it's filtered through our own perceptions and our own experiences. So, um, you know, I, for my point of view, um, I think that it's something else. I think that it is a combination of all of those things that I just said. And, and yeah. like life, sometimes it's messy. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's joyful and sometimes it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, I mean, obviously I didn't write it with any sort of point in mind. I I wanted to create an experience for the reader that, you know, that, that took them from one point to it and left them at a different point. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think, I think motherhood is a lot of intensity, a lot of intensity and be that the whole array of intensity. Um, 
And I think I was trying to capture that, you know, some of some of the people who I've talked with and some reviews I've read have said, you know, this book is also very much about love. And I and indeed it is. It's about this huge love that the mother has for her child. I think that's a huge vein running through Mm -hmm. it that sort of informs all of her choices. You're listening to my interview with Rachel Yoder, author of Night Bitch, which is now available wherever fine books are sold. I also think that there's, it's about darkness. Like there's a very dark part of it. Um, And I think there's a very dark piece of motherhood of, you know, when, when you have this child, when you first hold it in your arms, you've created this absolutely extraordinary, miraculous thing and it's so vulnerable. And, you know, if you drop it, it would die. Right. And so immediately you're also like holding its like mortality in your arms and, and you're just the entire universe is sort of there when you have this child that creation destruction, like you can kind of see its death in a certain way. And, and, and you're always kind of working against that, you know, like trying to keep that at bay. And so I think the book is about all of that. It's about trying to capture all of these really like deep, profound dualities that, that we come, come, come in touch with when we have kids. Right. And and actually for a lot of women that we feel in our bodies that become very embodied for us. Um, and that you've never probably felt before because it is such a singular experience. Absolutely. And it, and it does feel like it, it feels um, <laughs> for lack of a better word, like witchy or like, you know, like you're, you're like, you're kind of, you're touching something much larger than you knew existed and you, you don't have a name for it. You don't, you don't know what to call it, but but there's just this sense that um, there's something very large and mm-hmm. profound that you've entered into. Um, and so the book, you know, absolutely fails to capture that, but that's, you know, what I'm going, going for is right. like trying to get up there to that thing to talk about, you know, what is motherhood in this like grander sense and, and, and what do we, what are we in touch with when we enter into motherhood or, or even into parenthood? Yeah. And the book has just come out, but it's already been optioned uh, to become a film with Amy Adams. Tell me a little bit about that. How does that happen? Yeah, that is, that's a whole other magical process. (laughs) I had to ask my agent how it happened. Yeah, (laughs) this actually happened um, during quarantine. I had a wild pandemic for for many reasons, Um, but very soon after the book sold, um, I started talking to producers. So the manuscript, um, my agent works with a, um, a film agent who wanted to work on this project. So I, I got hooked up with her. She sent it out sort of on submission to producers. And so then I started talking to production companies um, as one does during a global mm-hmm. pandemic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a really long process, you know, like figuring out, who was right. And, um, I wanted to have a chance to also adapt the book. So that was a piece of it. But finally, when Amy Adams came into the picture, it seemed like that, that had to be the right decision. Um, yeah. So, so 
that got signed during the pandemic and got optioned and everything was really slowed down then, you know, no one was filming in Hollywood. So now things are started, are starting to, to, to pick back up and hopefully we'll have some announcements um, this year. I think things are moving along nicely. Um, But yeah, that's just been a, a whole thing I didn't see coming, but is, very exciting that mm-hmm. that other women artists who are operating at very high levels see this and understand this and and resonate you know like they, mm-hmm. they resonate with with what's going on and they don't just say oh it's somewhere where mom book like they get right. that yeah. what it's trying to do that was rachel yoder author of night bitch which is available wherever you buy fine books right now My guest, Terry Fallis, is a two-time winner of the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor and the award-winning author of six national best-selling novels. His newest book, Operation Angus, is a comic thriller that revisits characters from his first two novels, The Best Laid Plans and The High Road. Let's get to know Terry Fallis. Typically speaking, uh, your books take a long time to write or a longer time than you've spent on this one. This is a pandemic book. And I'm just wondering if, uh, because you had more time on your hands than you've ever had before, did it change the way that you write at all? That's a great question, Richard. That's sort of the mechanics of of my writing process. Uh, It did take me uh, not as long to write, but that's really because I had longer extended writing periods that I haven't had in the past. Normally, I have to cram my writing in in the sides around the other parts of my life, like a job. And I mean, I still work, but I was working from home. So instead of writing just on, you know, Saturday for four or five hours and Sunday for four or five hours, I could I could squeeze in some other time uh, to write. And I think it made it easier for me to stay engaged in the in the characters and Mm -hmm. in the story and in the manuscript itself because I was writing it in longer stints, not, oh, I've got an hour and a half, I'm going to try and finish that chapter. And it becomes a bit more piecemeal. So I enjoyed that. It was nice. I mean, the book is still coming out two years after my last one. So I'm on that same publishing schedule, but the writing schedule was a little bit different. It's the fastest manuscript you've ever written. Uh, Did you do your usual pre-planning? There's a great deal of pre-planning that goes into your work. Uh, Was that the same process here? Yeah, it's uh, you're good of you to remember that, uh, Richard. But yes, that is my rather uh, anally retentive approach to eliminating every element of uncertainty story I can find before I feel comfortable to actually starting to craft sentences. So I did go through that normal process of mapping out the whole story, developing a chapter map, and then eventually from that chapter map, building out each chapter, blowing out each chapter into a full four or five, six page bullet point version of the Mm. chapter. So I wind up with an outline before I've written the first word in the manuscript, an outline that can be uh, usually in bullet point form, but anywhere from 70 to 90 pages long, Uh, which I know that seems like a lot of extra work, but to me, it saves me time and angst. uh, (laughs) And when I have that that 90 page chapter by chapter bullet point guide on one side of my screen, writing the manuscript in a sprint 
it, it sort of liberates my mind to focus entirely on crafting sentences, which I think are the most important parts of a, of a story. And is there ever a, a situation where you're writing and you think, oh, the outline is wrong. <laughs> I've made a <laughs> terrible mistake or, or I, I, I suddenly see a better avenue, but it's going to affect the next 20 pages of your, uh, of your outline. Or, or six chapters. Oh, yeah. In case. yeah. Um, it, it's happened in, in a very, in very minor form. Normally, I've spent so much time going over and over and over the story. I've gone down all the blind alleys and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, chased all the, the rabbits down the holes and all of that and, and come back. And I think the story is where it should be. Um, now, on occasion, uh, I have found little things that have occurred to me. And I always try to keep a little part of my mind open to mm -hmm. such gifts that come. And uh, on, in a couple of my novels, small things have changed, but they're small, nice things that have, I've been able to bring two things together that didn't exist together by the end of the story in the outline. You're listening to my interview with Terry Fallis, author of Operation Angus, which is now available wherever fine books are sold. Now, the characters from your first two novels, uh, The Best Laid Plans on the High Road, uh, are back. They're, they return in Operation Angus. Uh, what was it like to revisit them? Uh, it, it was so much fun. And Richard, I, I didn't, I had no plans to go back to Angus and Daniel. I wrote those first two novels about Canadian politics. Uh, and I thought, okay, let's not get trapped into this. Let's see if I can write something else. Uh, and even though the tone and style of the narrative are similar across all my novels, it, my next five novels weren't really about, uh, weren't about politics. Mm -hmm. uh, and but the funny thing was, uh, having now in the last 13 years, somebody counted them up on my website, I've done nearly a thousand book talks, which uh, boggles my mind. Yeah. And what I have to <laughs> confess is that at almost every single one of those book talks during the question and answer period, regardless of what book I'm talking about, someone will say, or two people will say, yes, um, I really enjoyed this novel, but nothing will ever beat the yeah. best laid plans. <laughs> when are we going to see Angus back? And, and I'm always grateful for that. On, on the other hand, writers always like to hear that they peaked on their first novel <laughs> that have been on a slow decline ever since. <laughs> but clearly those characters, Angus and Daniel and the others, seem to have struck a chord. And it may be Canada Reads was was held for that mm. because it it exposed my my work to so many more readers than would normally have seen it, I think. So I was really blessed in that. So Angus sort of became a, a cause celeb and I would get, get these comments all the time. Okay, when's the next Angus book coming? Yeah. And I finally decided like, why am I fighting this? Uh, why, why not just embrace it? Mm -hmm. uh, I remember when Conan Doyle uh, put uh, Sherlock Holmes to death partway through the stories and the, the hue and cry was so great. Believe me, I'm not equating <laughs> to me or the situation, but I sort of feel what it's like to, to resurrect a, a character you thought was behind you. Uh, and I, strangely enough, it was just it was just like putting on a, a comfortable sweater. Uh, I was immediately back in that 
milieu with those players, those characters, that cast. And, uh, and I really enjoyed writing it, I must confess. Do you think that you know them better now? That's a really thoughtful question. I think so. I think I do. I've got, I mean, it's been 11 years since I wrote about Angus and Daniel and Muriel and, and the others, and 13 years since I wrote the first one. Uh, and I thought I knew them well, but with the distance and as, I mean, they continue to exist as characters in my mind. So in a way, I think they've been growing and evolving a little bit mm -hmm. in my own mind, uh, just as we would expect any of our friends to do over the course of a decade or more. Uh, so I don't know that they'll notice too many differences, but I wanted to have them confront issues that they have not seen before. This was not just another political satire. It is set in that world, but it, as you probably know, it's it's more of a comic thriller. It's not uh, it's not so much a, a story about politics. Well, I wanted to ask you that because you say this isn't a political satire, uh, that it's a comic thriller, but tell us what that means to you. What is the difference <laughs> between the two? I'm not even sure I know because there's, <laughs> there's plenty of, of political satire in there, but it's 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 meant to be kind of in the undergrowth as I wanted to try to challenge myself to do something different, mm -hmm. but with characters I, I know and, and love. Uh, and I, growing up, I always loved uh, reading, reading thrillers. Uh, you know, it started maybe with my Sherlock Holmes fixation and uh, and I read all the John Buchan books, 39 Steps and yeah. Green Mantle. And those are great old adventure yarns uh, where they take people who are pretty normal people, average people, and are thrust into situations where they are pushed a little bit beyond their traditional comfort zone. And I wanted to do that with, with Angus and Daniel. But I also wanted it to, again, be littered, I hope, with humor and be a a fun story. So there's a bit of a balancing act where mm -hmm. you have the elements of a thriller that are high stakes and maybe people are in danger and this is could be serious and bad, but have that balanced on a knife edge with, uh, with the humor. So I had a lot of fun with it. That was my interview with Terry Fallis, two-time winner of the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor, best-selling novelist. His new book is called Operation Angus, and it's available wherever you buy fine books. It's time to meet Ali Liebert. She's a Canadian Screen Award winner for her work on the television show Bomb Girls, and she can now be seen in theaters in the film They Who Surround Us. It's a poignant drama about a Ukrainian farmer living in Alberta who loses his wife in a tragic accident. The film is getting great reviews, Ali is getting great reviews for her work in it, and you can find They Who Surround Us in theaters this weekend. Let's get to know Ali Liebert, who joined me via Zoom from Vancouver. Congratulations on They Who Surround Us. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a powerful film that is based in part uh, on the family of your writer, director, co-star, uh, producer, I think, on this film, uh, Troy Ruptish. So tell us a little bit about the kind of conversations that you two uh, would have had leading up to this. It's That's a great question. Yeah, I I think when dealing with any directors, um, you know, a script that they've, they've written, especially when it's about their family mm -hmm. as an actor, that there is, I wouldn't say pressure, but it's... Um, 
you just want to do justice to their personal story. And, um, you know, Troy did a lot of research and I think for him making this movie, he really wanted to find um, folks that could invest in this personal journey with him because it is so sensitive and so personal. And, um, you know, I think my character of Natalia, I played the sister-in-law to Troy's uh, character, Roman. And, you know, we we created her together. And I, I think she was not so much based on, um, I think she was a combination of some of the people in Troy's life. But as a director, he gave me a lot of um, freedom, but also guided guided me when I needed to be guided, which is in just an incredible uh, respect to receive from a director in terms of how I like to work. So we meshed very well. You don't speak Ukrainian, as far as I understand. In the film, you do. You must have also had uh, some tutoring on the side just for the very uh, actorly parts of the job, getting the accent right, getting the, the, the syntax correct, all that sort of thing. Tell me a little bit about forming the character. Yeah, well, it's, it's, you know, I, I, I did, you know, some of the other cast and people involved, you know, we're, we're Ukrainian are, are Ukrainian. Um, so I definitely wanted to, uh, do my best in, because I did have to speak Ukrainian. Uh, the great thing is, is that we, we filmed in Troy's hometown of Vegreville, Alberta, mm-hmm. and Troy granted me so much access to um, folks that were able to help. I also went to theater school with a girl that um, speaks Ukrainian. So I would, you know, she was sending me voice notes (laughs) and, um, you know, there was uh, a costume designer who would also help me and she was a singer and we had to sing in Ukrainian. And so I had about uh, three different sources. Also one of the cast, um, Natalie Atzina was also, you know, uh, a huge wealth of, of information. And, you know, I just went, whenever you're doing an accent in any film or speaking the language, mm-hmm. um, you want to do justice to it. And, uh, I was very happy that when we had our premiere at the Edmonton Film Festival, there was a couple of Ukrainian folks that said that it was pretty good. So I was like, yes, I've passed the Ukrainian test. Right. Um, That's but, probably better than all the reviews combined right there. Those two people. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, because as actors, we have the ability to do ADR, which is, you know, re-record your voice over a performance. And I didn't have to do it for my Ukrainian. So I was like, Passed a personal test of mine. You're listening to my interview with Ali Liebert. Her film, They Who Surround Us, is in theaters now. The character is dealing uh, with grief in the film, dealing with the loss of her sister. But one of the things that I found so interesting about the movie, because it does explore uh, loss and grief and lots of very heavy topics, but it also explores the idea that community and, and family can come together through these terrible times and make things better. Mm-hmm. So it's not, uh, you know, we're not, it's not Albert Camus. It's not, we're not reveling in the ennui of it all. Uh, it, it's a really lovely um, uh, message. I think that through community, we can heal. 
Um, that was my takeaway. What do you hope people take away? I mean, I, I love that that's how it resonated for you. And that, that is my hope, um, for audiences as well. Um, you know, I have dealt with a lot of grief in my life and well, every actor, you know, they, they access things differently, you know, there's method and you can think about these sad things. And, but honestly, just being in the moment with Troy, it was just, you know, a those scenes, there's just a few scenes that are coming to mind where during times of grief, you just push and pull away from the people that know you best and love you best. And I think that's very true. I've experienced that in my life. And I think that Troy really captured that. So I think that a lot of folks will be able to see themselves in this story and feel not alone because grief can be really isolating and even though people are there showing up saying that they love you, it's, you know, there's guilt, there's grief. It's just so complicated. It's just so personal, the timeline of, of, of your grief. Do you think that shooting the scenes for the film uh, in, in very long takes from what I've read about this, it feels a little different the way the movie was shot. How did that feed your performance? You know, I've been doing TV and, and movies for almost 20 years now. And it was such a unique experience in the bond that we had um, as a cast and crew and all the hats that Troy had to wear. I, I'm in complete awe. And I think when you're going for these longer takes, it really forces you to be in the moment and you know, you can't get fancy. You just actually have to, I mean, and I try to do this anyways, not think about how just about me, because when you're acting, you're always, you're always wanting to, to do something to another person. You know, you're, you have an intention and so you shouldn't be focusing on yourself, but having it captured, like you said, in these long takes, it just forces you to be present. There's no sort of relaxing and waiting until you're until it's your turn for your close up, you have to be giving and listening the entire time because uh, you know new things can happen, and and that was really really exciting. Um, you know, it definitely takes a lot of stamina for sure. Um, these longer takes, uh, your concentration uh, really needs to be dialed out. But I think all of the actors in this film were uh, spectacular and and very excited to play in this way. Well, Ali, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, I'm really excited for Canadian audiences to get a chance to see this in theaters, because I know as a director myself, seeing films on the big screen is the way they were meant to be seen. And I'm really, really thrilled that this movie gets um, the chance to touch people's hearts. That was Ali Liebert. Find her movie, They Who Surround Us, in theaters now. Big thanks to Ali. Also a big thanks to Terry Fallis. His book, Operation Angus, is in bookstores right now. Also, I want to extend a hand of thanks to Rachel Yoder. Find Night Bitch wherever you buy fine books. But as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.